I'ma read that bitch. I'ma school that bitch. I'ma take that bitch to college. I'ma give that bitch some knowledge. I'ma read that bitch. I'ma school that bitch. I'ma take that bitch to college. I'ma give that bitch some knowledge. I'ma read, I'ma read, I'ma read. I'ma read, I'ma read, I'ma read. I'ma read that bitch. Welcome, dear reader, to the Book Jockey Podcast, where an ex-lit major reads and analyzes literature in the public domain for no one's amusement. Currently, we're still reading Powers of Darkness by Vladimir Osmundson, a Icelandic translation of Bram Stoker's Dracula, published in 1901. In the last episode, Thomas Harker was, has witnessed some creepy things in Castle Dracula, including a man crawling cat-like across a high ledge along the castle walls and a dead woman lying on the castle grounds. He has discovered he's locked within the castle as he finally attempts to get outside. In his search for any open doors, he made his way back up to the portrait gallery where he found two doors standing wide open. Now, I had the same thoughts while reading Dracula Maybe not the first time I read it, because the first time I read it was in fifth grade, and I was just a kid. I probably wasn't this aware at that point. Um, but when reading it again as a teenager, and I think in my um, early 20s, I read it again as well, for the third time, I it's very clear that Thomas, um, or as Bram called him, Jonathan Harker, is pretty dumb. <laughs> so when people go out of their way to make fun of the 1990s Bram Stoker's Dracula film um, and the way that Keanu Reeves played the character, sure, Keanu Reeves isn't the best actor. Um, and his portrayal is quite hilarious. Like he is basically doing the Bill and Ted's excellent adventure version of Dracula. But at the same time, if we're being true to the book, he's pretty much acting like the gaping idiot that Jonathan Harker is. Um, he's constantly surprised about things that are right in front of his face and obvious. Um, it's very slow to catch on that something is amiss there in Castle Dracula. Uh, he, his dialogue within the book um, is just someone who's just very slow Um it takes him forever to figure out that he's a prisoner. Uh, here we're, you know, more than like maybe a fourth in the book, and he's just now attempting for the first time to get outside. He keeps on having rediscovering that he's a prisoner, like writing in his journal, I now know that I'm I'm trapped here. I now know that I'm a prisoner. I now know that there's something wrong with Count Dracula. No shit, asshole. You fucking, you fucking are with a guy who doesn't eat, who's, who has pressured you into staying, told you that you have to write letters to your family, that you're not coming home. Um, Dracula has gone out of his way to make this very clear to you that you are a prisoner. Um, and you are essentially pulling uh, a Scully, X-File Scully, and like acting... Like, nah, the evidence right in front of my face mean, it, it, it is not clear enough. I do not believe in the supernatural. And I think that's largely what Bram was getting at with Dracula, this kind of um, 
there's this constant mention about how educated people of London uh, do not are not superstitious. They are not religious. They are secular and they are scientific. And it is said in a a kind of tongue-in-cheek disparaging way. Like it limits their ability to think clearly and to see the big picture. It limits their ability to see Dracula right in front of their eyes as someone uh, who is a threat and to acknowledge these things, um, to be able to judiciously uh, analyze the evidence. And it could just be partially too that writing of that time, oh, now my dogs are broken. Writing of that time um, was very exposition heavy. You know, like we're going to really reiterate for the reader that he's a prisoner by having the, uh, what is the word, apostolary, uh, diary, apostolary. Cool, I got the word right. Um, a literary work in the form of letters or, or a dry, in this case, diary entries as well. Um, uh, apostolary work constantly reiterate what thoughts and feelings of the characters are um, to really just drive it home to the reader. Um, but yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. I think it's a little bit of all of the above. Harker is stupid. The writers were actually exposition heavy. And there is a point that's trying to be made here that when you close your mind to evidence in front of you, you're going to miss the signs and the red flags. Okay, so let's go ahead and dive in. We're continuing um, with Thomas Harker's journal, as mentioned. Um, he is now exploring the house, trying to find any open and unlocked doors to get out after he saw a dead body in the grounds out of his window. <clears throat> and if it's there's background noise, I'm doing laundry, I kind of have to like hide around the house to find a spot to get away from um, people and this, um, the, the, the laundry units is in my bedroom, unfortunately and hiding my bedroom um, from other noise. So then I have to hide around noise. So we're just gonna have to, you know, to keep it professional with the washing machine in the background. The door on the left led to a room in a large round tower with several windows, but there were no doors in this room other than the one from the portrait gallery. Next to this door was another open door in this fucking shit. We get it with the fucking, the architecture writing, oh Jesus. And the sidewall of the gallery, leading to a long series of rooms of various sizes. They all faced west, and I guessed that they had made up a large part of the castle's west wing. I had no time to examine these apartments more closely, but I judged by the look of things that there were no staircases leading to the other living areas of the building. I assumed that such a set of stairs was somewhere to be found. But the last door in this series of rooms, this is like a fucking M.C. Escher painting, 
which probably led to a hallway or exit, was securely locked, so I couldn't open it. All the rooms were furnished in the typical way of old castles, with furniture originating from different periods, but nothing in the present-day style. Everything was old, faded and worn, though not rickety. I wanted to inspect the furniture more thoroughly later, as I didn't have time to do so at the moment. Mm. Okay, so, <clears throat> excuse me when I pause like that, I'm just taking a drink. You just realized, for you finally realized that you're a prisoner. Um, you saw a man, like, scale the side of the building, like, twice now. Um, you have seen a dead body. And you just said that you wanted to come back to inspect the furniture thoroughly later. Okay. Realizing I wouldn't be able to get out of this way, I hurried back to the portrait gallery. At its other end, the same side as the entrance, there was one more door. It was unlocked, and I entered a large, richly ornamented hall with three windows through which the sun shone in. Between the windows hung mirrors with black and gold frames, and the floor was painted in a gray and white rhombic pant pattern. It's interesting that there's mirrors. Because, you know, earlier, Dracula was very adamant that he hated mirrors. Everything was in a style known to be fashionable among high-born people at the beginning of the century, with pink, blue, gray, and white colors, all pale with age. Then I found another series of rooms, and I raced through them all as if in a dream. I had grown ill now. I felt faint and unwell, so I hurried as fast as I could. These rooms have probably been deserted so long that the air of them may be unhealthy, especially at this time of year, when the sun's warmth has not yet penetrated the thick walls. But it appeared as though these living quarters had been inhabited not too long ago. Most likely they had been ladies' quarters. Neither arrows nor other enemy fire could reach them, and the windows were larger and much higher than those of the rooms beneath. It's interesting. So they must have been ladies' quarters because um, artillery couldn't reach there. So that's where you would keep the ladies safe. After I had gone through several of the rooms, I found another door on the opposite on the wall opposite the windows. I tried to open it, but it wouldn't budge. However, upon closer inspection, I saw that it was not locked. The wood was merely swollen. At last, I managed to open it. I came to a dilapidated corridor, and though some loopholes in the walls, I could looked straight into the ravine lying east of the castle where a river fell into the form of a waterfall. The rooms on the other side of the corridor were all securely locked, and when I reached the end of the corridor, I finally came upon a downward staircase. It was narrow and steep, with small embrasures in the massive walls. As I started to feel better, as the air in the stairway felt fresher and healthier, relieving me of my nausea, but at the same time, the implication of what I had seen last night and this morning became clear to me. I had to get out of this prison as soon as possible. No shit, Harker. The staircase led to another corridor, longer and even more dilapidated than the one before. I suspected that I was now standing in the north wing of the castle, which more than the other parts of the castle seemed designed for self-defiance and resembled a fortress. At the end of this corridor, I found a large iron-clad door. The key was in the lock, and I barely managed to turn it. 
When I came through the door, I entered a rectangular room resembling a cellar. The walls and floor were constructed with unevenly carved rock, and everything was covered in spider webs. It was evident that no one had been in there for years. Light was falling through the two windows, and between them were iron chains and screws, for which I could not determine the purpose. A set of stairs led up to one of the windows as I rushed up the steps to see what I could find there. When I looked out the window, I saw that it must have been a countless detours on the way where to finally arrive at the building's north side. The window was small, so I couldn't see far to the right or left. But again, I saw we were near the ravine with a misting waterfall below. I had often heard the rushing water in the silence of the night, but I didn't think it was so close. From the main gate, the bridge led over the cataract, but now it had been drawn up so the castle could not be entered this way. I now understood the function of the chains I had seen by the windows. They were used to pull up the bridge. I also realized that even if I were able to exit the entrance hall, I still would not be able to escape. Quickly, I went back down the steps and took a good look around by the room. I saw that the tools for pulling up and lowering the bridge had recently been repaired and that fresh footprints had disturbed the dust on the floor. I surmised that the drawbridge was moved gradually and that people who operated it had to move about this room to do so. It was hard to believe that they had to go, to this, go through all the corridors and suites I had passed through in order to access this room, so there had to be another exit nearby. Then I spotted another door opposite the one I'd entered, but it was much smaller, barely head high, and had no lock, only a simple handle like the one seen on old farms in England. The handle could be pressed down easily, but the door itself was rigid and heavy. When I pushed it open, my face was met with a waft of foul odor, and I found four or five steps, winding staircases leading through down through the murky darkness. Had I been less wrought up, I had no doubt would have hesitated to go down there, but all I could think of was forging ahead. I propped the door wide open with the long a log lying in the corridor. Then I slowly went down the stairs. At first I could see by the little light from the doorway, but soon Stygian gloom took over, so that I had to reach ahead of me to find my way. It was a great distance between each step, which were so narrow that only one person could walk them at a time. It was as if they were descending into a deep well. Running my hand along the damp wall, I cautiously moved ahead. I must have gone down at least 50 steps and was beginning to think of turning back, but curiosity drove me forward. I wanted to find out what must be hidden in this castle, as the Count's words had implied, although I suspected that whatever it was, it must be something no honest man should go near. If this is the case, I must warn Mrs. Mr. Hawkins, my employer of the Count, who would undoubtedly be best kept exactly where he is. Suddenly, it seemed something was behind me on the stairs. I heard nothing, nor did I see anything, but I felt that someone was right on my heels. My hair stood on end, and I felt shivers running down my spine. I couldn't bear it, and so I turned to the side, backing up against the wall and placing one foot onto the lower step. And just then, I was attacked. Something, man or animal, I do not know, grabbed me. Not from behind, 
for then I would have been a dead man, but from the front and side, so that it was easier for me to defend myself. It's interesting that he felt something behind him, but then something grabbed him at the front of him. Something enormously heavy weighed down on my left shoulder and started strangling me. I could feel a gaping snout touch my ear, cheek and mouth with its thick lips releasing its rank breath. Then a leg, or something like it, was wrapping itself around my right foot, but luckily I had both hands free and could brace myself against the stair. I couldn't get to my revolver, so I grabbed the, the arms that were coiling around my neck and found that, although very hairy, they were definitely human. I yanked at them with all my strength, but they wouldn't give way. I felt something scratching at my neck, and it seemed as if my attacker was trying to get his lips on my throat. I had just grabbed his head with both hands when he suddenly released his grip and pushed me away, and I fell a great distance. I don't know how much time passed before I came to life again, but it took me a while to get my head straight. I was lying on the ground in front of a narrow doorway, and behind me, in the darkness, I could see the staircase. Ahead of me, as a long tunnel with some light coming from the windows high on the ceiling, Luckily, I had landed on the soft dirt floor, so I was not badly hurt. I considered the possibility that I might simply have panicked, became dizzy, and fell down the stairs, hitting the door I now lay in front of and smashing it open, and that everything else had been my imagination. But why would my shirt and its collar be torn and my necktie be gone, while the rosary with the iron cross which I carried in memory of the landlady I'd stayed with, had pressed itself so tightly into my neck that it left bruises. There was also this burning sensation in my throat. Ah, so the rosary is what protected him. Suddenly it occurred to me that I would have to go back up the same way I'd come, and the mere thought of it nearly killed me. It felt like I was stuck in a trap, so without thinking I continued my journey half-limping. When I came to the end of the corridor, it opened up into a windowless vault. Exiting the other side of it, I reached a round space with a dirt floor and three or four windows up high on the wall. The walls were constructed out of very large stones, and I guessed that I'd reached one of the deepest rooms of the castle. I could hear the waterfall better here than from anywhere else. The floor slanted downwards on the wall like a trench. I stood for a moment, finding my bearings. The windows were open, and a breeze was blowing through the spider webs hanging up from the ceiling. Even so, the air in the room was rancid. It didn't take me long to discover there was a stench where this stench was coming from. At first, I thought I was standing in a food cellar. It seemed as if heaps of produce were stockpiled along the walls. It also occurred to me that an exit could be nearby, to make it easier for the residents to access the room. I then noticed a kind of shutter or hatch on the wall next to me. I managed to open it. When I saw I might get some air and light in the room, I looked deeper into the opening, but just as I leaned against the wall to peek through the hole in the stonework, two skulls rolled down, one pale and shiny, but the other one with hair and skin still sticking to it. I was aghast by what I was seeing, even more so when I found that the trench by the wall was largely filled with human bones, moldy and half-decomposed. I could see a rib cage still connected to a spine, 
arms and legs with their tendons still intact, and skulls with hollow eye sockets all tangled together. The stench from this pile of horror, magnified by the increased airflow, was so putrid that I nearly flung myself out the opening in the wall. Fortunately, I managed to remain composed enough to not do so, otherwise I would have been to my very last step. Below the window was the abyss with its sharp cliffs and the sweeping waterfall. I looked again to make sure. This was no exit for any living human. It was meant for the dead. Panic struck me when I envisioned the trip back to my room. In my frustration, I ran right across the heap of bones rattling beneath my feet while I hastened to the other end of the room. There was another door and I managed to open it. What on earth would emerge from behind that door? What on earth would emerge from behind this door? Hesitantly, I opened it and slipped through. I had come to some kind of church or temple, though there were barely any icons found in Christian churches. The room was gloomy inside, with high-set bow, 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 bow windows. There were repulsive, half-primitive pictures on the walls, and I also detected strange symbols on the floor. Repulsive? What could possibly be there? All right, so let's go ahead and uh, look at the note for this. It says, note, in, the light of the, in light of the occult books in Dracula's library, this is perhaps another indication that the Count is engaged in witchcraft and occult practices. In Dracula, a reference to such signs in the castle's crypt is absence. Like most folk beliefs, Icelandic folklore knows a number of magical symbols. These magical runes or staves include, among others, uh, Agish Julmar, Mer, protection or invisibility in battle, Veg Visir, a magical compass, Oda Stafur, to induce fear in the enemy, Lasa Brujoter, to open locks and escape from custody, uh, Joe Fastofur, protection against thieves, and Stafur Jen Galdry, to protect against the magic of others. The use of magical runes is described in Sig Dir Fulmal, a part of Poetic Eda. Well, sounds like something I would like to read. All right, where am I? I saw stone coffins, and towards the end of the room was an oversized sarcophagus made of yellow and multicolored marble. Suddenly, I came across a doorway with a staircase behind it leading upwards. I hesitated before ascending, vividly recalling what had happened to me in the other staircase, but still I decided to proceed. When I reached the top of the stairs, I was standing on some kind of balcony. From there, I could see down into an old, decrepit chapel. I realized that the room I had just come from functioned as an underground crypt and must be connected to this sanctuary, but I could find no way down from this platform to the chapel. What I did find, however, were stairs leading up from the balcony, and I decided to climb them. I could tell by the condition of the steps that they were used often. As I ascended the staircase, I saw sunbeams dancing on the wall above me, 
which greatly lifted my spirits. There was a window. I was so relieved that for a moment I forgot that it was still uncertain whether I would ever get back to my room. I leaned out of the window and looked around. I saw that I was in the southwest corner of the castle, and from there I could see it was see its east side where my room was, and then I saw the windows I'd left open. If only I had wings, I would have flown there. It's it's fascinating how determined he is to get to his room, as if being in his room will magically keep him safe. You're still on the Count's castle. You're you're still like definitely in harm's way, bro. Suddenly, I saw something else that gave me pause. Along the wall beneath the window, I was looking out from the, ran the looking out from ran the ridge I had observed the night before. It seemed as though a shadow had been cast upon it then at the night. Whether the shadow was caused by human or not, I do not know, but it could only have come from this window, for there was no other doors or windows nearby to cast light. Hold on, I'm gonna burp. Awesome. Okay. I'd had more than enough on my mind in my attempts to escape the castle, and so I'd forgotten, almost forgotten about the body of the young girl I had seen not far from here. Really? I mean, that's kind of like why you're escaping, because, you know, there's like dead people around and lots of dead bodies and bones and... Okay. But then something happened to remind me. I saw an elderly woman wearing peasant clothes suddenly appear beneath between the bushes and the place where the corpse was lying. It was evident from her movements that she was trembling with fear, and upon reaching the body, her lips parted as if to let out a scream. But instead, she steadied herself and gestured to someone else, whom I couldn't see, to come closer. I now saw that she was standing on a narrow path on the other side of the castle that led along the foot of the cliffs. A group of people from the countryside, both men and women, came walking up to the trail, the same apprehension in their demeanor. When they reached the older elderly woman, they crowded around her, and it was clear she was reporting something to them. I had no doubt what it was. Yeah, I bet, I bet you have no doubt. The people spoke in low voices, but they were plainly upset. Then they all walked up to the dead girl. I could see everything her pallid face in the sunshine, the wound in her throat, and the blood-stained clothes on her dead body. Among these people was an old man who appeared to be in charge of the others. He seemed to tell them something that they were hesitant to obey, but they finally nodded their assent. A young man, who seemed to be even more grief-stricken than the rest, went to the bushes and fetched a limb from a mountain ash, which he was handed to the old man. The elder then drove the branch into the corpse's chest, mumbling a great many prayers, and then the crowd carried the body away. It was obvious that this ritual originated from ignorant superstition. I sat down and looked at my watch. I felt as though I had been wandering around the castle for a very long time, but now I saw that I'd only been there for three hours. Though I had expected the day to come to an end, the sun was still high up in the sky. I knew that I had to continue my tour. These stairs would lead to the upper part of the castle, and surely somewhere up there I would find its inhabitants. She had to be there, too. The glorious girl I had met, 
and then had seen once more, and she would, could not be alone. Somewhere there had to be handmaids, occupied rooms, and doors that could be passed through without hindrance. Although, until now, I had only managed to find my way to the abandoned parts of the castle. Carry on, I said to myself. Yeah, keep calm and carry on, Mr. Harker. You got this. I'm sure there's nothing, nothing else bad lurking around the corners. I ran up to the stairs, which were no longer pitch dark, and soon I came upon a, set, a sturdily built door. I was so jittery that I could hardly catch my breath. I suspected the door would be locked and that I would have to go back the same way I'd come or else perish here. The windows were somehow farther off, so there was not much light and I had to, to feel for the lock. The keyhole was open. The door must have been fastened. I felt lightheaded and nearly keeled over, so I sat down at the top of the stairs leaning against the wall. I was exhausted, and I don't know how long I sat there when suddenly I thought I heard someone moving about. I straightened up and listened as closely as I could. Yes, I heard it again. It sounded as if someone was carefully unbolting the door. Could it be? I jumped to my feet and stepped towards the door, discovering that it was indeed unlocked. I grabbed the penknife from my pocket and squeezed its strongest blade between the door frame and the door until it opened. A spacious hall with oak floors and wall tapestries spread out before me. There were also heavy, old-fangled chairs, like the ones in my bedroom. The blinds were half-drawn, dimming the light. Without making a sound, I entered the room. On the other side of the hall, two doors stood ajar. I guessed that the door on the left would lead me towards my room and to that of the Count. But before I headed that way, I wanted to make sure that no danger awaited me from behind the door on the right, so I tiptoed across the floor and peered inside. I soon realized that I was in the corner tower I had noticed earlier. It was a large, round space without a door, except for the one through which I had entered the room. The windows had been partially bricked up. The rest were barred with iron gates. There was no decoration on the walls save for spider webs. A wooden fence ran along the wall, and between it, the masonry lay heaps much like the corn piles I'd seen in the tiller's barns. At first, I thought this room might be used for grain storage, but this seemed highly unlikely, as it was on the building's fourth floor. Out of curiosity, I put my hand on one of the piles and felt hard, small, round objects that were cold to the touch. I took a handful and carried them to the window. I found it was something quite different from what I thought. They were gold pieces, dusty old gold coins, as was evident by their weight and metallic sound. I walked quickly around the room and examined the heaps. They all looked the same to me. Some coins were flawless, as if freshly minted, but some had blackened. I found none from our time. Some of them I didn't even recognize, while others were Greek or Roman. I am no numismatic expert. Maybe that's like a expert in reading coins or knowing things about coins. Let's look that up. Numismatic.
relating to or consisting of coins, paper, currency, or metals. Okay. Um, new, new numismatic. Okay. Um, where am I? And therefore I cannot judge the antiquarian value of this coin collection, but the price of the precious metal alone would certainly have amounted to many millions of crowns. But that was not all I found. I was becoming more curious and started snooping around more when I saw two chests with iron fittings in the middle of the floor. They were not locked, so I was able to peek under the lids. The chests were filled with a myriad of finery gold made of gold, silver, jewels, and pearls. There were golden drinking bowls, a large casket full of glimmering gemstones, and other such valuables. I also noticed compartments in the walls containing even more precious goods, no less sumptuous than those in the chest, but I had no time to examine them now. I came to realize that people hadn't exaggerated when they told me the Count was rich as Croesus, for I had never even seen anything like this. Somehow I felt relieved that nobody had cared to lock the door, even though it was ironclad on both sides, and secure this room, although it contained such immense treasure. I believe I now have a clear understanding as to why the Count is in so many ways extremely cautious. He must expect robberies and thefts in the house when he's not around, and thus locks all the doors so carefully. Ah, uh, yes, that is why he's so extremely cautious. It's not because he's just like hiding all those bones and dead bodies and his own coffin where he sleeps during the daytime or his secrets or any of those things. It's because he's trying to keep the robbers away. Duh. Next, I opened the door on the left. I was in a bedroom slightly larger than my own. By the wall opposite the window stood a four-poster bed with heavy bed curtains. From the bedroom, I could see into another room with bookshelves and a large desk in the center. I was quite certain I was now standing in the Count's private rooms, which matched the other rooms in the castle where I had lodged and moved about thus far. I hardly dared to look around as I suspected the Count or someone else would discover me, and I was unsure what would happen to me if they did. There were two doors in the room. I walked to the largest one. At first I thought it was locked, but when I put more pressure on the handle, the door opened, and I was suddenly standing in the large dining room where I usually eat. Now these rooms felt pleasant and welcoming. I felt as if I were coming home, and yet, just a while earlier, I had felt incarcerated and could think of nothing else but to escape from this place. It seemed many months had passed since I had been here, though it had only been a few hours. Everything looked as it had before. I went to the window and looked out over the courtyard. To my right side loomed the gate tower, where the stairs had led down into the depths of the castle. I realized now that I had returned here alive by a hair's breadth. I felt a weight lying over me, and I needed to wash off all the dust, spiderwebs, and mold, and dirt I was covered in. I noticed a sore on my throat, just above the artery, and I found bite marks. The rosary had obviously protected me as it had pressed its shape into my flesh. No matter how thoroughly I cleaned myself, the marks on my throat could not be erased. I was becoming ravenously hungry, so I returned to the dining room where I had noticed a cloth on the table before I entered the Count's room. 
Now the old mute woman was there setting the table. I don't think I'm mistaken when I say that she startled. She was startled upon seeing me, as if she was both frightened and surprised. Apparently, she didn't understand how I could have got there. She must have been in my bedroom just moments before to make sure I was not present. She looked at me with fright and glanced at the door I had come through, and then at the door to the Count's quarters. When everything was prepared, she invited me to sit down, and I happily obliged. I just... I can't even wrap my head around the idea. I mean, it's obviously losing his shit, you know. And after trauma, I suppose you're you're going to be excited to see something of the familiar. But he's like going to sit down and have a meal at this house. <laughs> just, I just don't. I don't get this guy. I vigorously began to eat, filling my wine glass and emptying it in one stretch. But then suddenly something so shocking happened that the glass dropped from my hand and shattered on the floor. I heard the key to the Count's room turning from inside. Someone had locked the door. This incident would have been insignificant to me had circumstances been different. But in this house, everything seemed to be pregnant with foreboding. As far as I knew, this door had been locked from the inside since the day I had arrived here. But today, it had been unlocked, which was a stroke of luck for me, for now it was fastened again, which meant that someone had been behind me or had seen me when I came in from the Count's room, or the Count had arrived in his room and bolted the door, or the old woman had realized I had ventured this way and rushed to lock the door so that I would not enter its chambers again whereas I doubtless should not be. I presumed the Count didn't want me in his chambers, as he had never offered me to show me them and always kept them locked. I hadn't entered these rooms on purpose, but neither can I erase from my memory that I'd been in them all the same. Should the topic arise, I intend to tell the Count forthrightly what had happened, that I got lost in the castle and found my way back to my room by sheer luck, but I would not let him know the things I had chanced upon. Okay. Okay, dude. <clears throat> when I got up from the table, I lit a cigar. <laughs> okay. He's going to fucking toke on a cigar after that. And walked towards the window. I found it rather chilly inside, so I opened the window to enjoy the warmer air that had been heated from the sun and which had settled between the walls of the courtyard. As I stood, sm stood smoking, I heard something like a lock being bolted shut and turned around. The mute old lady had entered, but where had she come from? I'd been so tired and absent-minded when she first came in that I hadn't noticed which way she'd come. I could tell she hadn't entered through the door to the corridor that runs along the castle. I was convinced she must have entered another way, and that somewhere there had to be a secret door that she regularly used. I'd often tried in vain to talk to her with gestures. She simply could not understand me, staring at me in bewilderment, almost as if she were afraid. The only way to find out was to watch precisely when she came and where she went. I saw her peering at me from the corner of her eye, but I pretended not to notice. Turning to the window, I glanced over my shoulder to watch what she was doing. I was sure somewhere in this dining room was the door to the exit I'd sought for so long, 
hoping to escape my imprisonment. Quickly and skillfully, she took the cloth of the table and put the tableware into a well cabinet I hadn't noticed before. After picking up the pieces of the glass lying on the floor, What? Why was there glass on the floor? After picking up the pieces of glass lying on the floor, I saw her hesitate, not moving. She looked in my direction, and I could tell she was suspicious of me. I pretended not to notice anything, but observed her all the more closely. However, a moment later, I happened to look out the window at the swallows flying over the courtyard, and I heard the same whistling sound as before. When I, came, when I looked back, the old woman had vanished. This time, I clearly heard the sound coming from the small octagonal room between the dining room and my bedroom. I had left the door to the dining room open. The secret door had to be there. Quickly, I charged into the tiny cabin to examine the room. I checked it as thoroughly as I could, but found nothing. As the space is without windows and a shimmer from the Joining rooms is the only light source. It was very dim. I decided to have another, more thorough look later and stopped groping around for now. I was also quite tired from the wandering about the castle earlier in the day, so I went to bed and fell asleep at once. But I woke up again after an hour, feeling well and rested. How can he just like eat and smoke cigars and take a nap and feel well? I expected the Count to be home by now, so I went into the library, but he was not there. To pass the time, I started writing in my journal, and it all seemed so unbelievable, more dream than reality, were it not for the tangible evidence, which could cannot be contested. I hardly know what to believe, but worst of all, I cannot trust the Count. Why is he buying himself a house in London and moving there? My employer is a thoroughly honest person and it would damage his reputation were he to facilitate the migration of a shady scoundrels to London. There were enough of them in the city already. Yeah, these shady scoundrels with their dungeons full of skeletons. The Count should arrive any moment now. The sun is setting, and that lovely valley is fraught with evening scent and the same gentle beauty at the first time I saw it. I should go up to the top floor, as there must be an even more captivating view from the portrait gallery in the tower. Shouldn't I? Um, he just, he wants to go check out the view? This guy is like chill as fuck. He's really just, he's handling this like a champ. A little bit longer. Now, oh, this is this entry. This entry is starting just coming in hot. God save me! I hardly know whether I'm awake or asleep. Why do I see and hear things that are not real? Is it the solitude? Is it because everything here is so different from what I'm used to? It was probably just a dream, but God grant that I never have such a nightmare again. The Count told me that he found me fully clothed and fast asleep in my bed when he came home, and that it seemed as if I'd had a nightmare. He said that I had been mumbling and tossing wildly around in my sleep, so he had woken me up. My first thought was to believe he would report correctly, 
where I had indeed woken up in the middle of the night, lying on my bed, fully clothed, with the light burning on the table and the Count standing next to me, glowering at me with his black eyes. I was exhausted, as if I had drunk sleeping medicine, so I silently obeyed him when he told me to take off my clothes. I must have fallen asleep directly thereafter, as from that point on I was dead to the world around me until quite late the next day. So, um, that says May 12th on the entry. The other entry uh, didn't have a date on top, um, which, you know, is not like the Bram Stoker version, which every journal entry was clearly dated. The last time we had a journal entry dated, if I keep going back, um, was May 10th, which was many, many entries ago, way back before you saw the body and everything. Um, so I think that though I kind of criticized the book for maybe being a bit too much exposition, it's also possible that there um, is omissions because we're just getting the point of view of journal entries and not really getting the the an omniscient uh, narrator telling us exactly what is going on. But it's definitely possible that a lot of um, Thomas Harker's strange behaviors um, of being so submissive uh, and not being as scared uh, and wanting to run away and being okay with things um, uh, to a certain extent, to believing that this was a dream. And uh, as he says here, just taking off his clothes and obeying the count and just falling right asleep again, um, or that maybe he is being drugged or sort of hypnotized by the count's uh, ability to, which is a pretty common vampire lore to um, seduce and hypnotize people. Um, so it, yeah, it, we don't really know exactly what's going on. And we have to kind of have that, uh, level of, um, level of, you know, disbelief or questioning. But I'll continue. Okay. So we'll continue next episode um, after he's been convinced that he had a dream. See where we take off. See how much longer we're going to be in this castle with Thomas Harker and Dracula. Um, hopefully I'll see you again before another whole month passes by. Enjoy the Democratic primaries and have a lovely evening. Bye.